electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. The big call of some of this market's biggest winners and how it impacts your money. The details, the debate, they're straight ahead with our investment committee. And joining me for the hour today, Joe Terranova, Jim Labenthal, Pete Najeri, and Liz Young, BNY Mellon's Director of Market Strategy. I'll take you to the wall. I'll show you where stocks are trading right now. We did hit intraday highs earlier today. Fell back a bit. Dow's down about 36. S&P, NASDAQ now in the red. Russell still hanging on to the green. Want to show you the DoorDash weight as well. Yes, we are paying attention to that IPO today, too, as the gang in front of us is. 102, the price, well, indicated now 190 to 195. We'll show you the first trade the moment that it happens. We'll talk all about it, a market cap that is right now, and people on Twitter are talking a lot about it, more than Chipotle and Domino's combined right now. And it's going to be even growing from there. So we'll talk a lot about that, what it means for overall valuation in the market, which was our lead anyway. Why? Because J.P. Morgan today downgraded several high-flying tech stocks. Pete, this is where I want to begin with you because this is an interesting downgrade. The timing very interesting to coincide with this DoorDash IPO, which we're talking about with a lofty valuation in its own right. So they go downgrade on CrowdStrike, on Okta on DocuSign, on Zoom, on Cloudflare. They're looking back to 2010. They're talking about the relationship between the highest multiple stocks then related to software valuations and how they underperformed the software stocks at that particular time. And talk about maybe it's starting to replicate itself now. What do we think? Is this trying to pop the bubble before it gets too big? I would say yes. I, I, I would agree, by the way, with the J.P. Morgan analyst and, and, and the idea that we have some – they don't just have high lofty valuations, Scott. In many cases, these companies, we don't know when they're going to make money, but, they, but, but they're exciting and they've been great. And the pandemic has certainly added to a lot of what we are seeing happening in a lot of those specific names that you're talking about here. But, yeah, when you're looking at P.E.s that are anywhere from 140 up to the thousands – um, that that says a lot. And I and I would have to agree that I think we've we've learned over time a little bit. We still overshoot to the downside, the upside and all the rest of it. And I think we have overshot to the upside here. I think there is room for a pullback. And we've seen a little bit of this because we've seen a, a, a bit of a rotation, not necessarily just to value, Scott, but to names that 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 make some sense that maybe are a little bit inflated themselves. But you can much more tolerable to be to be in some of those names, some of those Dow names, some of these S&P names well, that uh, that we talk about each and every day as we move to the financials and we move over to the, the, the material space and the energy space where many of these uh, particular areas that are still Im- impressive, but they're nothing valuation wise like what we're seeing in some of the names that you mentioned, DocuSign right. and some of the rest. So, Joe, let's come to you because, you know, Pete ends on DocuSign. You, you do own DocuSign. So what do you do 
with this J.P. Morgan call today and more broadly, what do you do and what do you say our viewers should do if they're in that stock or others just like it? Well, first of all, I want to be wherever Pete is right now because it looks spectacular, but I am in DocuSign. You and I have discussed that. I've got to stop in place because I agree with the J.P. Morgan call and I agree with the narrative which you've been communicating over the last couple of weeks, which is urging viewers to really look at these emerging growth stocks and understand the sky-high valuations that they're trading at. But Scott, that does not mean to me that the market is going to go down if we see these emerging growth stocks begin to correct. I still think there is enough support. I think there's enough dispersion. I'll use Alphabet as a prime example. Alphabet has come to life. We're not even talking about Alphabet. Hey, Alphabet let, is let, now... Let's say two different conversations. Let's say these are two different conversations. All right? I agree with you. There, there's nothing to say that if these stocks have an upset that the overall market is going to fall over on, on its head. However, there are a lot of people okay. who got into these stocks, Joe, who need to know whether mm -hmm. J.P. Morgan is ringing the alarm bell loudly enough that they need to take some profits or put stops in the way that you have. And a stop alone doesn't erase the issue itself of something being overvalued. Well, if you if you have ownership of these stocks, the, the stop does exactly that. It's, it's a risk management strategy, and that's what you should be doing. So I said I agree with J.P. Morgan. I also said you've been very accurate in communicating this over the last couple of weeks. So to the viewers who have ownership of all the names that are on the list, Okta, CrowdStrike, all of them collectively, you have to understand what is your risk management process. You have to define it. You have to measure that risk, and you have to implement some form of discipline that's going to protect whatever your current position is. The only position I have right now is DocuSign. That's exactly what I'm doing, and I'm encouraging the viewers to do the same because absolutely, these are astronomically high valuations, and you must pay attention to okay. that. Okay, so Liz Young, the problem with all of this and even part of this conversation in and of itself, these companies keep delivering. Their earnings come out, they keep delivering. They keep justifying why they've made these moves. And just because what is astronomical today can still be astronomical a long way tomorrow. As we learned in 99 and 2000 with Greenspan's irrational exuberance, which went on for four years before the dot-com bubble popped. Right. So I want to go back to something that you asked at the top of the show. Is this the bubble that needs to pop before we move forward. I, I, the definition of a bubble popping makes it sound very dramatic and that everything's going to fall out of bed and we're going to have this huge pullback. I don't think that's the case. But we are seeing a transition in the market from these high growth stocks into the ones that should be stickier in an early sort of recovery story that we expect to take shape in the end of the first quarter, early second quarter of 2021. Now, that being said, Valuations matter. I would never say that valuations don't matter, but they matter less until long-term rates go up, especially on these growth stocks. And at that point, valuations will look a lot more frothy than they are today. But until then, they're not necessarily a reason that the market needs to have this huge pullback or huge correction. But if you're, you know, Jim Labenthal, you, you look at these stocks, which seem, you know, kind of sky high to you, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, but even you, to a lesser degree in terms of a stock name, 
A Salesforce, for example, which a Jim Labenthal I know, the farmer, never would have touched before. (laughs) But you've even waded into the water because it feels pretty good when these stocks go up a lot, Jim. (laughs) I'm in the kiddie pool, though, because here's why. I mean, Salesforce, (laughs) currently 60 times forward earnings, and and it'll probably, based on earnings results last week, that's probably going to look more like 50 times earnings as analyst estimates get refined. I think you have to draw a distinction between the super high flyer software stocks, which since Fastly came out with their pre-announcement, that was the canary in the coal mine. It's off 40%. Zoom is off about a third since then, and that that is a bubble starting to deflate, if not pop. Now, the, the key example right now is Snowflake, and let's use numbers. Its market cap is $110 billion. Its addressable market is $84 billion. So we're basically saying that nobody's going to compete with Snowflake at that valuation. Nobody. Not Twilio, not Microsoft, not Google. Um, and that they're going to have no cost of goods sold. That's what you're saying if you're buying it here. Let me draw a distinction between Snowflake and a name that Joe mentioned, which is Alphabet, which does have a bid to it. Alphabet is profitable. It has good cash flows. It has cash. And it trades at 30 times forward earnings. Not dissimilar to Salesforce. You have to draw a distinction between where the bubble is, those high-flying Zooms and Snowflakes of the world, and where it isn't, which is the leaders of large-cap tech. There's no bubble there. But, Joe, if, if, if Josh was on today and CrowdStrike is one of his favorite names and he adds to it even as it has big valuation with it and says these are the kinds of companies that are the growth this is where the action is it's justified where it is because it's going much higher because its business is going to grow much greater I mean how do you how do you counter what very well could be the truth I'm I'm guilty of the same thing I own DocuSign so Josh owns Crowd. I'm sure he's got a stop in place for that stop, uh, for that stock. That's exactly what you should be doing right now. I'm not saying owning all of these, but there are particular stocks that you could identify, as I have said in the past, as it relates to DocuSign, that it is not, as you said, just show up and sign. There is something transformative about DocuSign that I fundamentally believe in. However, given the valuation, given where the volatility is surrounding these stocks, I'm asking to implement a risk management strategy. There are other stocks, Scott, that we're not even talking about on this list, like a Peloton, which I think the valuation there is absolutely ridiculous. I don't even understand why someone would own a bike company <laughs> trading at you know 200 times and, and near $120. A bike to company? To me, that's more. Bike company? Come on, Joe. They're like the digital forefront. <laughs> they're, they're an oh, apparel oh, company. Okay. They're a right. lifestyle company. They'll sell microwaves if you want one. I mean, they say they sell everything <laughs> under the yeah. roof. Yeah, well, you know what, Scott? You and I are about the same age, and we remember riding our Schwinn bikes back in the early 80s and getting the same type of workout. So come on. What about well, what about Pete, this idea <laughs> that your 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 better bang for your buck, if you will, at this point uh, is going to be in software stocks, be it Microsoft or Adobe mm-hmm. or even, you know, Jim's Salesforce or, you know, Snowflake, Oracle or any of those other names. Pete, yeah. what about that argument that that's yeah. where you're going to see outperformance, especially if J.P. Morgan's right and some of these high flyers start to falter a bit. Money goes into the other place. Right. I think they would shift away and the money would go to other places. And I think you're exactly right, whether that means it's Microsoft or 
I'm going to say it, IBM. I don't know if Jim is still an IBMer or not, but uh, I own the stock, Bill no. Scott. It's had a, actually had a little bit of a, a, a move back up to the upside from where it was. So, it, you know, it, it's interesting because there's a lot of different names in the software area that I think you can look at them. You could say they do have some growth. They don't have as much growth, obviously, as these high flyers that we're talking about. But at the same time, you can feel a little bit more comfortable to go and sleep at night and not expect to see your stock potentially be down. Like you guys were talking about some of these names that are down 30 and 40 percent off of their highs. Um, you, you can go to sleep at night knowing that that's probably not the case in many of these others, whether that's an Oracle or, you know, you could go through the whole list. But the reality is, I think that there's a lot of different names out there that have great potential right now to continue to to maybe get from some of those names as they start to get away from some of those those names of the high flyers. They're going to come over into in names like an IBM, in my opinion, and some of the old school tech and some of the software, whether that's uh, Microsoft, whatever it might be. And actually, I think that's a, that's a rotation that we will see. So it's still within tech. It's still within software, but just coming from some of those high flyers. So, Liz, if I told you, though, that DoorDash is going to open 200 bucks, it priced it 102 Ooh. bucks. <laughs> And there's the indication right now as we wait for the first trade, 195 to 200 as we still have this big wait. And that the market cap is going to be more than Chipotle and Domino's combined and maybe well beyond those. What say you to that? <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to generalize a little bit about this crisis and what I think has happened in the crisis, and, and DoorDash would fall into this category. There are a lot of consumers that got familiar with using types of corporations to stay at home. And some of them would have never gotten familiar with that before. They're certainly going to use it more after the crisis, more than they did pre-crisis, but the demand will still fall. And once we get back to normal, I would put home gyms in this category too. Once we get back to normal, the demand for those new consumers just won't be there. It's gonna to have to be maintenance for the ones that exist, in which case competition picks up, Price competition especially picks up, and I think some of these are going to have a little bit of a cooling off period. Now, that doesn't mean that DoorDash is a bad investment, but I do think that there's, a, a, there's something to be said for waiting through the price discovery phase. You know, I mean, full disclosure, I used DoorDash just last night, but, and I've used it a lot <laughs> during the pandemic, as Liz just said, and I know all of you have probably as well. But, Joe, you raise a really interesting point about Peloton. And, you know, do you put DoorDash into that same category once we try and get back to normal? Am I going to use DoorDash on Tuesday night? I don't know. Maybe I'll go out. <laughs> Maybe. But there's a duopoly. And let's keep in mind what Uber is currently doing right now as Dash is moving higher. Uber is also rallying with it. And that seems to be breaking out. Um, the price is just too rich here. Listen, I think that Dash... Um, I expected, and you could see it in the notes, I expected to get the type of performance that you got from Snowflake. And obviously, you're getting that right now, but, but I'm not going to buy it here where, where it's basically half of McDonald's or, or you know, you've got Starbucks, which I own, which has a market cap of $120 billion. So it's just too rich for me. I'm more interested in Airbnb, which is coming. I'm now concerned that that's going to get away from me as well. But just in terms of, of your question, I do think Dash will continue to be embedded in uh, consumer behaviors as we move forward because there's going to be those evenings where you're going to want to sit home on the couch and watch a Capitals game or a Redskins game, Scott, and you're going to want the food delivered to you. And Dash is good at doing it 
or you could use Uber Eats. That would be the Washington football team to you, Joe. Big victory this week. Thank you very little. So, Pete, yes. you wanted a piece. For that. You, you wanted a piece of Dash, yeah. right? You, you're allocate. You didn't get it. Yeah. You didn't get it. What about in the Did open not. market? Nope. Not absolutely not. I, I'm with Joe. I, I, I love what it's doing. It's why you wanted to get it on the IPO pricing, because it felt like this was going to be like a snowflake or, or one of the, the, the many names over the last year or two that have absolutely skyrocketed from where the price was to where they actually open. But to chase it, Scott, just makes absolutely no sense to me. And to Joe's point, uh, I think we will be in, and I brought this up many times, this hybrid society. So the door dashes of the world, they're going to be around. And obviously, they are much more of a focal point now than they ever were before. And when we come out of this pandemic, when the vaccines are out there, we're going to see a lot of adjustments, whether that's Peloton, whether that's DoorDash, whether it is all of these various names, Zoom included. They, they will still exist. They'll still be just fine. But there's no doubt in my mind that demand will absolutely wane. And so because of that, I, I, I wouldn't want to be chasing it right now. As a matter of fact, I think that there's the possibility that we could have a nice, this big bump. And I wouldn't even be shocked, not that saying it's going to happen, but I wouldn't be shocked if we actually saw the stock actually sell off. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how the reaction uh, goes in the first hour of trade or so. Well, Jim, I just wonder if, 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 say, Snowflake was like the pulling down of the fire alarm, if DoorDash is the six <laughs> alarm blaze that we look back on and say, you know what, this market is just on fire and it's getting a little bit out of control, we need to call in the reinforcements. I think you're on point, all right? I agree with where you're going with that, but here's the, here's the key element is, when does the fire actually burn everything down? I, I don't think it's anytime soon. When you seasonally have this sort of risk on sentiment, as evidenced not just by the IPO market, but also equity fund flows, uh, incredibly low put-to-call ratios, this all speaks to a risk-on environment that this late in the year usually goes through the end of the year and into the middle of January. Now, I'm really hoping these IPOs continue to do well because I'm very much invested in the markets and everything I own is doing well. I want it to continue to do well through the end of the year. Let's worry about putting out the fire in mid-January. Does that sound irresponsible? It does to me, but it also is realistic. It's just realistic. Wow, that, that sounds like the old, uh, you know, I'm going to dance as long as the music's playing, Jim. That's basically what hey, you said. you know what? Listen, Scott, you're right. You're right. But you know what? Think about the penalties of not dancing while the music is going on. And look, all of us on this show are experienced. I, we, have, we have a better chance than most of figuring out when to dial back risk. I don't think it's now. I really don't think it's now. You look at the IPO market, you look at fund flows, it's telling you stay invested. Is that, is that how you see it as well, Liz? I mean, you got, you know, so much money on the sideline, as Jim is saying, where fund flows, you know, may go. Um, this idea of having an end-of-year rally, the Santa Claus rally, and then into the beginning of, uh, part of next year as we get even more optimistic about the, vac the vaccine. I agree with Jim that it's not the time to take risk off the table. I'm a little skeptical of a year-end rally because I still do think that we have some headwinds in the near term that the market is going to have to get through. Now, to be clear, I think the market gets through them just fine, but we might have a couple bumps before, say, the end of January or before we get another fiscal package. But first and foremost, what the market needs is continuing good news on the vaccine. That is the biggest risk out there. If we get news on a vaccine that it's going to be delayed or that it's not going to be as effective as we originally thought, and right now it seems like the market is pricing in almost herd immunity by early summer. 
if that timeline moves out, then that's going to be a pullback in the market. But if all things stay equal right now and we continue on this path, this is the time to have risk on. And I say this to clients every single week. You must be present to win. You don't want to miss out on that. Got to be in it to win it. Uh, Joe, you bought Best Buy. How does that play into your overall view of the market here? Well, uh, I had owned Best Buy previously, got out of it back in August. I've been keeping my eye on it as it continues to pull back from its early November highs. It obviously screens very high within uh, my quality momentum index. In particular, for quality, it's got an ROE above 40%. It's got the last quarter sales growth coming in above 20% when over the last three years, it's only running about 3.5%. So I'm taking advantage of this pullback. I'm utilizing the 200-day moving average, which sits around $93 as a reference point. It has not gotten below that 200-day moving average since early in the spring. So this was a good time to step in and buy it. That's Pete, exactly what I did. Pardon me for interrupting you there. Pete, you bought some Best Buy calls too. I did. I didn't buy the stock. I bought the calls. I, I'm not quite as confident as Joe is, I think, right now on this pullback. So um, I loved seeing We had some unusual the other day on there, Scott, and it prompted me to jump in there. I, I, like, I like Best Buy. I think their numbers are phenomenal. Stock has pulled back. And at some point, the problem is, I, I just don't know if that continues or not. And so for that reason, that's why I chose to be in the options instead. It gives me that limited risk because what I pay is what I can lose. So that's why I, I chose to go that route. But I do think great company. Their, their numbers are, are absolutely inc incredible, it seems like, every single quarter. And the way they're able to compete in this market and because of, obviously, a pandemic, it was also one of those stocks that did very, very well throughout that with all the sales of all the laptops, everything else. Um, I think that it's a great company that is really well run, and I think the options were the bit way that I wanted to attack it rather than being in the stock. Watching the stock move up here as we're having this conversation. Um, you're active, Pete. Again, yep. um, you bought shares of U.S. Yeah. Steel, letter mm -hmm. X. Why? Yeah. Yeah, you, you know, I've, I've been talking about this material space for a while now, Scott. In the month of November, it's absolutely exploded to the upside. Energy, materials, you've got some great industrials, and then also some of the financials that have started to move very, very nicely over the last four, five, six weeks to the upside. But the material space is exciting for me. I know I hear a lot of the, the folks that are on uh, the Halftime Report and the rest of CNBC talking about all these various cyclicals and all the rest of the industrials. And I think the materials really play a big part in that. So the second I see any unusual there, I, I jump on it. So I've been in Valley. I've been in uh, Freeport McMoran. When I saw U.S. Steel, that was a company that I was confident enough in that rather than the options in that case, I actually bought the stock. So really pleased with how it's done. It, a nice run up towards 20 today. I think it hit 20. A little bit of a pullback off of that, unless it's changed a little bit since then. But I, I like this name, Scott, and I think Nucor and, and U.S. Steel, I think steel, iron ore, all of these names still have all kinds of upside from here. Okay. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we're still waiting for DoorDash, and it's a big-time IPO. We will get there as soon as that first trade begins. The range getting a little tighter, which means we are getting closer. 188 to 1, well, 185 to 188 now. We'll bust out of the break maybe if, if this thing actually starts trading. Leslie Picker's watching that for us. We're going to talk to her. We've got a couple of big calls on Disney today. Shares are jumping off that. We've got Morgan Stanley's Chris Toomey waiting in the wings to tell you where this market is going. A lot ahead. We'll debate all of it next.
Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Sue Herrera. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. Canada has approved the COVID-19 vaccine from Pfizer and BioNTech. It's set to get about a quarter million doses this month and four million doses by March. On Michigan's Upper Peninsula, authorities are still searching for the pilot of an F-16 fighter jet that crashed overnight. The plane was part of the Wisconsin Air National Guard based in Madison. In the southern Atlantic, this is one of the largest icebergs ever recorded. It is 91 miles long. It covers 1,600 square miles. And unfortunately, it's on the move. It could slam into an island off the tip of South America. And scientists say that iceberg could devastate wildlife there, including penguins and seals. Back here at home, take a look at that. That is a humpback whale in the Hudson River, right between New York and New Jersey. Locals are delighted with the chance for a whale sighting, but experts are worried the whale could be injured by a passing boat. And Scott, they're thinking of reducing the, um, the speed limit, I guess is the word, in the Hudson River to try and protect the, uh, the whales. So. Yeah, probably a good idea. Amazing sight. Sue, thanks. You got it. All right, Sue Herrera. Let's check you up on DoorDash as we continue to wait for the first trade in its IPO today. I said we're getting a little bit closer because the range is getting a little bit tighter. That's a tell that they are getting close to the finish line, at least for the very first trade. Priced at 102, you're looking at 185 to 188, where the stock looks to go out. We'll keep you up on that, and I promise you we'll bring you the first trade as soon as it happens there. Let's bring in our featured guest today. Christopher Toomey is with Morgan Stanley Private Wealth. He's back with us. Good to see you again, Chris. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. I'd like to play off the DoorDash news if we could just simply you're talking about a big time valuation on a day where we're looking at downgrades to some of the most high flying of growth tech stocks. Are we overheated? Are we looking at a big giant bubble in one part of this market? Well, look, I think if you look at equities in general, uh, particularly on the S&P 500, about 90% of the index right now is trading at above its 200-day moving average. So it's it's probably a little bit overbought. But I think what's important is to understand why we're at this place. And I think it's really based upon two important factors. The first one being we're at a situation where we've got a very accommodated global uh, monetary policy that's going to go out until 2023. So we think that's going to provide continued liquidity into the market and keep rates uh, still at very low levels. And in addition to that, we've also got tremendous global fiscal stimulus coming into the economy. There's news with regards to Mnuchin and Pelosi coming together on a CARES uh, 2.0 uh, stimulus plan that we think is going to provide continued stimulus to the economy. And I think if you think about it, we're right now in a situation where we believe we're still in a V-shaped uh, uh, growth economy. 
Uh, and this is going to be synchronous across all major and emerging market economies. This is uh, 12 out of the last 40 times we've seen this. It's been a very good outcome uh, for markets. And we think that that type of conviction is going to continue to prop risk assets higher um, in these markets. So I think, yeah, we probably wouldn't be surprised if we see a pause right now. Um, but I think our general view over uh, the uh, short and intermediate term is for continued outperformance. So you agree uh, then with your pal over at Morgan Stanley, Mike Wilson, who says almost, you know, almost identically, recoveries create rotations, right? We've seen this rotation into value stocks. But with those rotations now fully in gear, it may be time for a near-term pause. He says it's critical to be more selective rather than chasing. And he, like you, is certainly positive over the longer picture. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if you remember when I was back uh, in September, we talked about the opportunity of value versus growth, and in particular in small caps. Um, October, we saw markets pull back. I think with concern about a second wave of COVID, as well as concern about the outcome of the presidential election. And then we had a huge rally in November, and small caps are now up about 20% over that time period. And we saw value start to catch up to growth. And so that disparity between growth and value in large cap and small cap has now come to a more reasonable area. And now we probably want to be a lot more selective with regards to where we're putting capital in those cyclicals and those value areas because they have run a little bit. It sounds, though, like you're all in on the this V recovery and this economic resurgence once we can all get the vaccine and get back to whatever normal is going to look like on the other side. Your overweight cyclicals, industrials, energy, materials, financials, small caps, pretty much the whole gamut. Yeah, I mean, I think the one place that we're not overweight is probably fixed income. I think if you look at uh, where rates are right now, almost 80 percent of the global fixed income market yields less than one percent. Um, the move in November has put credit spreads at all-time heights, excuse me, all-time tights, uh, whether you're looking at investment grade or high yield. So there isn't a tremendous amount of value in those areas of the market. And so we do see some uh, real opportunity still in equities. And I think part of that conviction comes from, you know, just looking at general companies right now, uh, uh, and generally speaking, they're in very good shape. PMIs continue to be very uh, positive. And then if you look at the consumer, you know, which makes up a large deal of the economy, even though unemployment's at 6.7%, we're still seeing personal income rising. We've got a savings rate above 13%. And I think a lot of this is bo uh, being boosted because we've got a strong housing market. Uh, we just saw that mortgage rates are now at all-time lows, and the stock market's doing exceptionally well. So you throw that with uh, the stimulus that we're seeing both from global monetary authorities as well as fiscal stories, I think that's going to continue to push risk assets higher. What's the, um, what's the only risk? I mean, interest rates, is that a, a rates a risk? Um, 10 years, 95-ish basis points right now, yeah. delay in vaccine rollout or, or problems, setbacks r related to that. Where, where does the risk lie? Well, I, I think, you know, if you look at uh, the employment number last week, and the market's response to that, I think we're in this almost kind of Goldilocks, uh, bad news is good news situation, where I think if we do continue to see uh, the rapid increase in COVID cases 
and we continue to see it affecting uh, employment, you'll see more pressure on Washington and other governments to continue to provide stimulus uh, to help us get through that period. So I, I don't necessarily see COVID as, as big a risk, um, especially given all of the progress that we're making on the vaccine and therapeutic side. I think the bigger risk is probably on the infl inflation side and the rate side. Uh, you know, the Fed has is, is basically come out and said they're not going to do anything until 2023. You know, if we're right and the global economy continues to move at this pace, um, we could start seeing inflation moving um, higher and higher. I know that uh, last night it was reported Jeff Gunlock is talking about inflation uh, seeping into the global economy. And that could be a, a major risk, particularly for fixed income assets. How big do you think next year is going to be for stocks? I'll, I'll leave it with that, that question to you. You know, I think, generally speaking, Morgan Stanley's um, estimate is about an 8 to 10 percent return on, on equities. I think it really is going to be a question of where you're allocating capital within that market. I think it's really going to be based upon um, individual names and individual stories as opposed to just broadly across the, the general market. I think one area in particular where I think investors are probably underweight and that doesn't necessarily meet this hypervaluation concern that you're talking about is China. I know we talked about it last time, but China, about 20% of the global GDP, 20% of the population, but only about 4% of most market indices. It's growing at about a 2.2% rate, even though it was the first into COVID. It's also proven to be the place that we're seeing um, handling the virus uh, in the best possible way. Our expectations for China next year is to be growing at over 9%. Um, it has much less debt than most developed countries and trades at a valuation discount. And I think what's important is, is when you're looking at China, you're talking about two different types of investments. You're talking about traditional China, which is the traditional exporter manufacturer. You know, as we know, the Trump administration was trying to control that trade deficit, and they didn't do a very good job because it's continued to get larger. If you look at commodity prices, which I think are a very good indication with regards to what's going on in the global economy, they continue to rise, which we think is a good sign with regards to the fact that China continues to manufacture and continues to grow. And the second part is probably that, that growth in the middle class, China turning inward. As I mentioned before, you know, it used to be less than about 18% of China's economy. If you look at the indexes now, it's almost two-thirds mm -hmm. of their economy. So one of the areas where I think if you're concerned about valuation, but you do want to continue to play this V-shaped recovery is, is looking at places that are going to benefit from Chinese growth. I appreciate the time today. Happy holidays to you and your family. We'll see you sometime in the new year. Thank you, Scott. Take care. All right. That's Chris Toomey. Morgan Stanley, private wealth management, joining us there. Bullish calls. I mentioned them before on Disney. A couple of them today. Let's go through it, guys, because you've got initiated overweight at KeyBank. 177 is the price target there. Upgraded to overweight at Wells. You got a street high, 182. Farmer Jim, you own Disney. Yeah. 
And I think there's a very simple analysis here. It's some of the parts. These analysts, most analysts, are looking at Disney catching up with the subscriber count of Netflix in the next year or two. That's pretty big, you know, pretty big gains. But assuming it happens, Netflix market cap is about 225 billion right now. Disney's is 280 billion. That means basically you've got a Netflix in Disney, and you've got every other business valued at 55 billion. Well, those other businesses, studios, theme parks, et cetera, earned $17 billion in 2019. So you're talking a three times multiple on those businesses. Yes, I get we're in a pandemic, but we're going to come out of it. It's a question of when. And three times the rest of those businesses is way too cheap. Uh, so some of the parts completely supports being long Disney right now. Yeah, new, new 52-week high today. Uh, the high today, 157 uh, and 46. Pete, you got out. A, a while back. What would get you back I in? Um, you know, I've seen some options that, that, that intrigued me, Scott, recently. They were, out, they were going out to June. This is very recently. Going out to June, the 165 strike. Um, but that stock's made an unbelievable move. I think at the time of that buy, the stock was 146. Here you said 157 a day. It's about 155 now. You know, I, I love this company. I love just about everything about them. You know, the one aspect of it, and I know Jim looks at this stuff uh, closer than I do every, every single day, but it feels like it's a little bit lofty to me. And the reason I say that is, look at where the PE is now, forward PEs for Disney. And we see this in a lot of these great names, and we, we all know that as, as we get the vaccines, as we come out of this, the rest of the portfolio of Disney will start to kick in and add to the streaming and the DTC and all the rest of it. So um, I understand it. I'm... I, I guess I'm just waiting on any kind of a pullback, Scott. I love the move. I was in the stock, then I eventually got into just the options themselves. Now I'm not in there, and I'm kicking myself a little bit because I've missed at least the last 10 points or so on this run. Is that a real backdrop, Pete? They don't have palm trees on Lake Minnetonka. <laughs> I know that. Uh, you, don't, you don't have to tell us where you're at. You know but. where? <laughs> I'll tell you where I'm at. I'm down in your neck of the woods and my neck of the woods, man, Tampa, Florida. I'm actually in St. Pete right now. It's an absolutely beautiful place. My wife and I have been on this great road trip, and city by city by city, we're, we're, we're looking around, and here we are down in St. Pete. It's beautiful here. The right. Absolutely good. gorgeous day. Good for you. I know people are talking about it on Twitter, so I wanted to figure out where you were. Uh, it's a beautiful shot. All right. Awesome. For more on the biggest analyst calls of the day, you can check out the write-up on CNBC Pro. Go to cnbc.com slash pro. Still waiting for DoorDash. Let's take you back to the screen, show you where we're looking now. I said we're getting closer. 179 to 182 is the range right now. 102 is where the price was. We will see uh, where this opens, and when it does, we will be right there. Up next, we'll tell you about the top ETFs to watch as well. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. 
Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, welcome back. I want to show you the indications for DoorDash as we're told the first trade in that stock is imminent now. 179 to 182 is the current indicated range. 102 is where it was priced. Leslie Picker's been following the money throughout this entire process. She's with us now as we walk you up to that first trade. Les, it's taken a while. Sometimes they do. This one seems like a little longer than the others. It sure does. I mean, look, we're already almost to 1 o'clock and we're still waiting. But as you mentioned, we saw those indications come in as high as $200. And it looks like now it has officially opened for trading. Wow, one 81 right now uh, at about 181. This company is seeing a pop of uh, about, I think that says 80 percent. percent. You have to do a double take when you're looking like, wait, what? <laughs> I need my glasses to see that. Of <laughs> uh, 82 percent, a tremendous pop on the first day of trading. Values this company at about 70 billion dollars on a fully diluted basis at that opening level, which is tremendous, Scott, because this company tried to add a, a, an auction, a hybrid auction-like system to really avoid this first day pop. Uh, it's kind of a new, a new twist on the IPO process where they take orders in through an auction system somewhere between, you know, a Dutch auction like we saw with Google and a direct listing, which is much more of a, a pure auction-based system and a traditional IPO process. And they use that information to set that 102 price. Uh, and as you can see, there was just a tremendous amount of investor demand for this company. That stock now trading up 77% in its first day for a company that was already coming in when you look at a relative valuation compared to its peers and compared to other platform companies, well above a lot of those companies. And now it's it's just tremendous yeah. seeing uh, the, the first day of, of performance here. Les, I'll be talking about, you know, leaving money on the table. We, we always hear about that sort of thing when you have instances like this priced 102 and then it opens up 80 um, percent. Can you give our viewers a little bit of an idea about how a company like this sort of estimates what demand is going to be uh, for an IPO and how you can get such a uh, how you can be so off in terms of the, the, the pricing and what the actual first trade is going to be? It's a great, great question. So the way that it traditionally works is that big institutional investors and hedge funds will all submit their indications of interest to the company and its bankers and say, I want to buy X amount of shares at X price. And from there, they're able to assess a demand curve. And, and sometimes you do a little give and take. If you want certain investors in your book, people that you think will be with you for the long term, won't flip right out of the gate, then you may say, OK, we're willing to come down a little bit on price to give those specific investors allocation into this deal. You know, the, the challenge is, is those indications of interest are non-binding. So people will say, I want to buy in at this price, but they're not beholden to actually ordering at that price. So it is a little bit of an art as opposed to a science. And then one of the unique twists of this year is that, and we've talked about it on this show so many times, is that you've got this new kind of variable in the retail investor. So with a stock like DoorDash, that is such a name brand company, a lot of people use it, a lot of people work with them if they're a merchant or if they're a dasher themselves, that is a little bit harder to assess demand because 
you know, it's such a disparate group when mm. you think of the retail investors mm -hmm. as opposed to going to a Fidelity and a T. Rowe uh, and a BlackRock. That's easy. You know, you can have big orders from those investors, but you don't know what the demand looks like from a retail investor as you're trying to build out your book. That's a really good point. You know, the Robin Hooders, the Robin Hooders. Uh, if you will. So what, what does this mean in terms of what we're going to see tomorrow as we expect from Airbnb, if anything? What are we learning about the pricing there? You know, it's interesting. These two have been kind of neck and neck throughout the process. They both came out with a range. They both both boosted their range. And at the high end of the range that they boosted, they were looking to raise pretty much the same amount of stock, $3.1 billion. Now DoorDash priced about 7% above its boosted range to, to raise $3.4 billion. Uh, Airbnb is looking to price at the high end of its boosted range or above that range, uh, which would put it pretty close to where DoorDash is in terms of an offering size, but probably won't surpass it. Um, that said, interestingly, DoorDash doesn't have a green shoe. Uh, so the $3.4 billion is what they are going to raise, as opposed to a snowflake, which raised about 3.4 in its IPO, then triggered the green shoe, which allowed it to raise 15% more stock, putting it at 3.8 billion dollars. Uh, Airbnb, it'll be interesting to see kind of how that dynamic plays out. I do think that after watching what's going on with DoorDash, Airbnb may be a little bit more aggressive in terms of its pricing. They're also using that same hybrid auction method in order to assess the price dynamic. But they may say, OK, we have this input from the hybrid uh, auction technology, but we're hearing from investors that, you know, they really like what happened with DoorDash. They're sitting pretty, uh, you know, up 83 percent on their money or whatever it is that they bought in at. Uh, they may be more willing to go a little bit higher in terms of price just to get on that Airbnb deal as well. If there is a, a nice tie-in, which I think there is, they both have a similar story with regard to benefiting from the pandemic, showing po pockets of profitability. Uh, Airbnb, I will say on the top line, did take a leg lower compared to last year, whereas Air, uh, DoorDash saw its sales quadruple year over year. But still, it's got that same kind of story stock feel to it, Scott. Yeah, I'm looking at the market cap of Dash as we speak. It's you know greater than $50 billion, Les. You're talking about... Uh, a Chipotle and a Domino's combined, <laughs> um, which is just astounding when you think about uh, those types of stocks and an, an IPO in, in just what is a red hot environment yeah. uh, right now for stocks like this, as you say. Thanks so much. We'll uh, I'm sure talk to you tomorrow <laughs> with Airbnb. Thanks, Scott. Joe, give me a quick comment on this. If for no other reason than I think you're interested in getting in on Airbnb. I am interested in getting in Airbnb. I'll tell you, there's a very interesting market internal that's occurring right now. So as money is obviously going into DoorDash, you could pull up these five stocks, Peloton, CrowdStrike, CloudFare, DocuSign, and Zoom Video. Money's clearly coming out of those momentum-type names right now as we speak. I don't know if it's going directly into Dash, but that's fascinating to me that such a successful IPO for an emerging growth company. And on the other side of that, you're witnessing what was uh, the, the, clearly the stellar emerging growth, growth companies declining precipitously mm. as that's opening. That's interesting. You know, wash, rinse, repeat, right? You, you, you see these go up, you yeah. know, rinse yourself with some profits here and then repeat it by trying to get another big bang. And that in either DoorDash or maybe looking ahead to Airbnb. Pete, how do you feel about Airbnb as we look ahead to that one? Yeah, I, I, I'm excited for it, Scott. There's no doubt about it. But, you know, again, uh, uh, it would be great to be involved, but I think you almost have to be involved on the on the actual IPO. Otherwise, I think you do feel like you're going to be chasing. Now, 
it's interesting to watch as we as we see some of the pricing and it's moved around. It's shifted around pretty dramatically, really, Scott, from what we were just talking about at the very beginning of the show in terms of uh, DoorDash. So it, it's going to be interesting, I think. I, I love these names. I know Joe loves these names, but I, I agree with Kramer. I think it's very difficult to chase if we get the, the openings that we're seeing in front of us right now. Yeah. Let me bring in Bob Pisani as well. He has our ETF Edge uh, today. Bob, I know you're, you're, you're here to do ETF Edge uh, as our segment. I, if you have an opinion on what we're witnessing, since you are literally the person who is in the booth as these IPOs open for the very first time, I'm, I'm just curious your thoughts as you watch DoorDash open as high as it, it did when you are so attuned to how these things are priced. Yeah, it's it's frustrating for me today, Scott, because I'm not on the floor standing next to the man who trades these stocks, uh, which is a major part of the whole emotional involvement in this. So uh, I feel a little bit deprived today and uh, really missing the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and hope to get back there quickly. Three things. First, up market. Most important thing, historic highs. Number two, a known name, known to millions of people. As you said, you yourself, Scott, ordered from this recently. And number three, strong retail pressure. And yes, I really do believe the increased retail presence we've seen is a factor here in a lot of trading that we've seen recently. So those three factors really adds to this. For DoorDash itself, I think the important thing is one person said to me, you know, an analyst, he said, you know, think of this company as a logistics company. They're trying to solve, you know, the final mile with a very perishable product. And the question is, how do you do that? Grubhub, obviously, and others are involved in that, but it's an interesting question. Scott, let me move on here and talk to some people who know about ETF flows here. This is the ETF edge portion of halftime uh, and some important big ETF flows going on. Our guest today, Harry Witten from Old Mission, Todd Rosenbluth from CFRA Research. Harry, let me start with you. You watch ETF flows. We are seeing some very big inflows and some very big ETFs, including that IPO ETF, which is having an historic day of trading. Yeah, hey, Bob. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you're right. IPO is up over 100% year-to-date, seeing big inflows over the past week. Uh, the fund has grown to over half a billion dollars this year. Um, it's really exciting. I think you know everybody's tied on to the whole record of IPOs happening this year. I think there's going to be, by the end of December, over 400 new funds that'll be, or new issues launched in the IPO space. Yeah, important thing, too, as well. We're also seeing some inflows into uh, uh, Kathy's, uh, Kathy Woods' fund, ARKK. That's just been a monster this year, and it continues in December as well. Yeah, ARK, ARK ETFs as a whole, as a family, have probably been one of the biggest stories this year. They brought in over $15 billion this year. They were a pretty small issuer and now become a major player in the space. Uh, they have funds that are up 140, 150, 160 percent, and they're not leveraged products, which is usually where you see those returns. Uh, it's just been a fantastic story, and it'll probably be ongoing just because they're really innovative at in what they do. Uh, another area I think yeah, you might Todd, have interest GameStop. in GameStop. Oh, go ahead. No, go another ahead. area Sorry. that's been uh, active has been uh, emerging markets, which have been outperforming since March lows. Uh, EEM is consistently a top five traded ETF and Wisdom Tree has a product SSOE that has gone from 20 billion, 20 million shares outstanding to 80 million shares uh, and is uh, really performed very, very well. Yeah. Uh, Todd, GameStop, I see today down 16%, some dif- disappointing commentary from them, but it's not impacting the gaming ETFs. You look at ESPO, Hero, GAMR, these things have had huge inflows all throughout the year investors love using these thematic 
tech ETFs, including gaming. These are all at new highs, all these gaming ETFs that are out there. That's right. These video gaming oriented ETFs have gathered about a billion dollars of net inflows in 2020. The stay at home environment that we've talked about beforehand with working from home. This is playing from home. But these are global ETFs. So while you have exposure to electronic arts uh, and Activision Blizzard, about 25 percent of Hero, H-E-R-O, is in the United States. You've got exposure to Nintendo. Uh, the Vanek product, ESPO, has Tencent as its largest holding that you showed on the screen. So you really have a global play uh, for these ETFs, other ETFs like Nerd, uh, and you're showing Gamer, G-A-M-R, on the screen as well. We think this trend is going to continue into 2021, regardless of more people are going back to home. They've gotten comfortable playing video games, and they're likely to do that in the future. All right, Harry and Todd, thanks very much. Everybody, join us on Monday, 1 p.m. Eastern time, when we talk about 2021 trends for ESG, environmental, social, and governance. That's etfedge.cnbc.com, 1 p.m. on Monday. Halftime is back in 30 seconds. Sue, the futures outlook now. Wild day for crude oil jumping in and out. You see of uh, what's happening there, uh, as we said, all over the place. Bill Baruch with us, Blue Line Futures. Bill, where's it going? Hey, I think it's going higher. You know, if I told you today, coming into the day, the S&P is down half a percent and crude oil is holding ground with a 15 million barrel build. I don't think you would believe me, but that's exactly what we're seeing. That build was only a headline build because really what we saw was a big increase in imports and a big uh, drop in exports overall. If you extrapolate that out over the week, that's an 18 million barrels uh, added to the market right there. I think that we're going to see this thing draw down through the month of December. So I'm buying crude oil here, and I think uh, right by a 45 and a quarter, get more aggressive in the February contract, risking a stop down to 42 bucks. I recommend using the mini crude oil, which is half the size of the regular one, per $25,000. That way your risk, if you get in right here about 1700 bucks, ride this thing up to $50, and that way you're looking for about a $2,700 gain. All right, good stuff. Thank you. Talk to you again soon. Come back. We'll do final trades. We'll get Pete's Unusual as well next. All right, let's do Unusual. Pete, what do you got for us? I'm going to give you Spirit Airlines, Scott. They bought 17,500 of the January 30 calls in there for about a buck 40. Stock was trading about 26.70. So we got a little bit of time with this trade. They're going out to January. I'm going to give you Rocket Companies as well. About 13,000 of the December this Friday, December 11th, the 22 strike calls for about 20 or 40 cents. Stock was trading around 21 and a quarter at the time. I love both these. I'm in both these names right now. Quickly give me a name for your final trade, please. Facebook. All right, good stuff. Thanks, Pete. We'll talk to you soon. Liz Young, final trade. Emerging Asia on a weaker dollar and a pickup in global trade. Okay. Joe Terranova. Motorola Solutions, MSI. And Farmer Jim. Apple is breaking out after a three-month consolidation. Hmm, interesting on a day that Goldman uh, reiterates their sell on shares of Apple. Good to see everybody. Thank you. Look ahead to Airbnb's IPO tomorrow. What will that bring after DoorDash today? That does it for us. The exchange begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, 
the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.